I want to talk this morning about temptation and uh, how to resist it. That's always a very practical, pertinent sort of topic because all of us uh, have times when we're assaulted by temptation and completely fail, and we wonder what in the world happened. We feel like somebody backed a Greyhound bus over us or something, and uh, we wonder if there is a way out. The purpose of our study this morning is to show us that there is a way out, and there, it is God's intention that we develop winning ways. God wants us to, to display the character of God in every circumstance. And though we may fail and will, will fail from time to time, there is a way out. I'd like to have you turn with me to the 39th chapter of Genesis. This is this very familiar story of the near seduction of Joseph by Potiphar's wife. It's one I'm sure you're familiar with, but uh, perhaps you'll see it in a new way this morning. I want to begin by reading uh, verse 1, Genesis 39, 1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. Uh, you may remember that uh, some days or months prior, Joseph had been sold by his brothers uh, into slavery. He was sold to an Arab uh, band of Arab merchants and uh, taken down into Egypt. Uh, Joseph was one of Jacob's 12 sons. He was the 11th in order and was the first of Rachel's children. Rachel was uh, Jacob's favorite wife. And as things uh, would be, Joseph was the favored son. And he had certain advantages that the other brothers didn't have, one of which was being appointed by his brother to a supervisory position over his older brothers, most of whom were 12 to 15 years older than he. So you can imagine it was somewhat awkward Joseph uh, was supervising, uh, ruling over his brothers, and they felt the strain from that, uh, from that situation. I think that's what's behind the coat of many colors. We don't actually know what that term signifies, whether it's a very colored coat or a long sleeve coat or some, some such thing, but evidently that long cloak that Joseph wore signified his position of leadership. He was a supervisor in the family, and that got him into a great deal of trouble with his brothers. And as you know, he went up to Dothan to check into their affairs there. Uh, they seized him, threw him into a pit, and then sold him to a, a camel caravan that was passing through town. And they took him down to Egypt and sold him to Potiphar. And what a, what a change awaited him when he arrived in Egypt. He went from being a pampered young man with everything going his way to a different culture, a different language, different situation. He was placed in the family of the head of the king's bodyguard sort of director of, uh, of internal security, who was also the king's executioner. He carried out the death orders of the uh, pharaoh. And uh, so was a very cruel and cold man, a very difficult place for, for Joseph to be. Uh, it's another one of those reminders that God does not pamper his people. We wish he did. We wish he would make things a little bit softer for us, but he doesn't. Uh, his purpose is to make us grown up, men and women, men and women of character, God-like character. 
And he may at times take us through some very difficult circumstances, as he did with Joseph, in order to produce in us the character that, uh, that he's after. As you know, Joseph was to be the man, the vehicle for the salvation of the people of God when they, when they came down into Egypt. And so the Lord is preparing this young man in advance. So now he's down in Egypt in Potiphar's uh, household. And then we're told in verse 2 that uh, despite his adverse circumstances there, the Lord was with Joseph, and he prospered. And he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. That is, he began as a field hand, and uh, someone recognized his value as an overseer, and he shortly made his way into the house where he was a servant in, in his master's house. And when his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So he left in Joseph's care everything he had. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. The uh, Egyptians were preoccupied with various dietary taboos, and so Joseph had nothing to do with the kitchen, but he was over everything else in this great man's house because the Lord was with him. Now here is a young man taken out of a, a privileged place in his family where he's loved and appreciated and supported, and he's placed in a foreign environment. Uh, he has to learn a new language. He has to learn a new way of doing things. He's exposed to temptations that he's never experienced before, but he's successful in everything he does because we're told the Lord is with him. Now, earlier the Lord had given him a promise. He was told through a dream that his mother and father and his brothers would bow down to him and he would have a position of eminence among them, and he seized upon that promise. He believed it. He may have been very unwise or naive to reveal that dream to his brothers because that just enhanced their their hatred of him, but uh, that was a word from God that he believed and clung to. That's all he had. He didn't have any fellowship with other believers. He didn't have the scriptures as we have them today. He just had one word from God that he believed, and that was the controlling principle in his life. And that became the foundation for everything that Joseph did, just as the word becomes the foundation for everything that we do. And what this says to us first is that, that the, the basis for our action in the world is a, is a vital relationship with God through his word. That's where we begin. We can't expect to present any kind of solid front. We can't expect to stand in the face of temptation unless we have a vital, ongoing, personal relationship with God through his word. That means we have to get to know him through reading the scriptures and through responding in heart to what God has told us. That's foundational to everything. And we just can't say, I don't have time to do it, because we have time to do the things that we know are priorities. Whatever we feel is absolutely essential, we do. And if we understand how essential the Word is, then we'll, we'll take time to cultivate our relationship with God by reading and pondering and responding in obedience to His Word. Now, there are a number of things I think we discover from the Word. The first 
is that the Word sensitizes us to sin. I, I find for myself that when I'm not spending time in the Scriptures, uh, things are going on around me in the world that I don't perceive to be sin at all. That's just life. And I get very hard and insensitive to spiritual things, and I don't look at things from God's perspective. I tend to take on a very secular and worldly cast. Uh, that's the way I look at life. And pretty soon, you know, we start talking to our wives the way Archie does, or Mr. Roper, uh, or various other things. Uh, Carolyn and I last week, in the middle of the week, caught just one segment of the television program, Ike, which I'm sure many of you saw. Uh, there was a, a multi-part series on Dwight D. Eisenhower. And the portion that we saw had to, it centered on the, uh, the, the supposed or so-called affair that he had with the British woman who was the driver of his vehicle. And the thing that struck Carolyn and me is the way that adulterous relationship was presented. It was almost necessary in view of the difficulties of war and how harsh wartime was and Mamie was clear across the ocean and, and there was Ike and he had a great need and there was this woman. And it's never presented as anything other than natural and right and proper. And you know, if, if that's all we have coming into our mind, then that's the way we look at life. After a while, we start thinking the way the world thinks about, about things. And, and you see, we need the Word to apply a corrective to that. We have to screen out the world's thinking by a preoccupation with the Word of God. So that's just an incentive to build that kind of foundation. The Word does other things, of course. It tells us about the power that we have in Christ. Uh, most of us think that uh, when these onslaughts come, we're impotent. We failed in the past, but the Word tells us we're not powerless. Sin will not have dominion over you, Paul says. And as we, as we read and ponder the Scriptures, they lead us to faith, to believe what God says is true to gain his perspective on things and to see that, that there is power, adequate power, to, to withstand any temptation. All right, that's the first and foundational thing that we see in Joseph's life, and it and con continues right through his life, whether he's in Canaan or in a pit or in Egypt or in prison in Egypt or whether he's the vice regent, regent of, of Egypt. There is that solid foundation of a, of a relationship with God, a vital relationship with his Lord. Um, all right, let's uh, continue. The last half of verse 6, as the plot thickens. Now, Joseph was well-built and handsome. Uh, he is still, today in the Near East, used as an example of, of uh, masculinity uh, in their art. And he's described here as well-built and handsome. The only other two people in the Bible given that description were David and Absalom. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. Nothing coy about this young lady. Better <laughs> frontal about the whole thing. But uh, from what we know about Egyptian culture at that time, the whole society was... It was decayed. Uh, they were worshiping dung beetles, among other things, at this time. And, and uh, though they had law codes, their morality was almost non-existent. 
And so she uh, makes this, what must have been a very inviting offer, come to bed with me. Here is the wife, perhaps very attractive young wife of an official uh, in, in Egypt. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I. And that in itself might be an excuse for uh, entering into this, this relationship with her. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do the wicked thing, the great sin, actually, and sin against God? Now, that's, that's the second thing we need to see. Joseph saw very clearly that sin was sin against God. Uh, it was true he would have sinned against, against uh, Potiphar. He would have sinned against Potiphar's wife. As Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 6, sexual sins are uniquely sins against our body. He would have sinned against his own body. He would have uh, prostituted the use for which God gave him his, his body, so short. Uh, but ultimately, sin is against God. I, I have lost track of the times when that fact in itself was a deterrent to me when I was off someplace where no one knew me and I could do anything. And, and no one would ever find out except I knew God saw me and God knew. Uh, you may have heard the story of Michelangelo who spent a great portion of his life lying on his back painting the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel way up in the ceiling on a scaffold. And after years of working he was in some corner of the chapel and one of his helpers encouraged him to hurry the whole process along because no one would see into that dark corner, and Michelangelo's response was, but God would see. And you, and you see, that's true. God sees into the dark corners of our life. He knows what we think, and he knows what goes on in the quietness of, of our own hearts and in the darkness of our rooms. And when we're off on business trips, when no one else sees, God sees, and God knows. And he is a father, but he's also a judge. And Scripture tells us very clearly that, that we do not ever get away with anything. Um, Paul puts it this way, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all wickedness and all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now that's said in context about non-Christians, but if it's true of non-Christians, how much more so of his own children? He judges sin. As Howard said last week, God doesn't strike us down with lightning bolts, but he does judge his children. What he does is let us go. He lets us do what we want and reap the consequences of it. Uh, the old uh, law of inevitable consequence still stands. We reap what we sow. And so God lets us act contrary to his will, and he lets the results stand, the emptiness, the boredom, the nervousness, the fear, the guilt, the feelings of frustration, the numbness, the unhappiness, all of these things that, that descend upon us when we choose to, to disobey. See, God sees, and God knows, and God judges. It's all redemptive. It's designed to bring us back, but we don't ever get away. We think we do, but we don't. 
Some of you know, may know my good friend Bob Smith, who uh, lives down in California. And a couple of years ago, we were traveling uh, in another country, and, and we were eating in a restaurant. And a lovely young lady walked up to the table and sat down and began to talk to Bob. He's the better looking of the two. And, uh, and she propositioned him. And Bob said, in just the most loving, tender way, he looked her right straight in the face, and he said, young lady, he said, I can't. It'll cost me too much. And I've never forgotten that. You see, that's what we need to see. Sin always costs us. It costs us dearly. And, and any time we disobey what God has called us to do or to be, it, it destroys, at least temporarily, our relationship with Him and that terrible sense of emptiness and frustration and the guilt is what's left behind. And so we need to see that. That's a second point that we need to remember. And that's uh, particularly handy when we're, all off, when we're off all by ourselves, when no one can see. God sees. God knows. And then in verse 10, we're told that though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to, be, to lie alongside her or even to be with her. He wouldn't even come in the room with her. Uh, he, he was uh, applying the principle that Paul states uh, that uh, he is not going to make provision for the flesh. In other words, he's not going to put himself in situations where it's easy for the flesh to have its fling. Um, we as Christians have a tendency, I think, uh, many times to go right up to the edge because we think as long as we're not sinning, we're not hurting anything. But the problem is many things on the edge that are not sin pitch us right over the precipice. And therefore, we need to avoid those circumstances that, that make temptation uh, almost unendurable. We're not to make provision for the flesh. That's what Jesus had in mind when he said with regard to adultery in the Sermon on the Mount. You, you've heard it said, and the law certainly says this, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say to you, if a man looks after a woman to lust after her, he has already committed adultery. Now, he's not making it more difficult for us. What he's saying is that if you want to take care of the actions, if you want to cut off the actions, you have to cut off the thought. It's the thought that determines the action. And if you looked at, look after uh, a person long enough with intention to commit adultery, you'll commit adultery. That's what Jesus is saying. So deal with the thought that prompts the action, but then he takes it even a step further, and he says, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your hand offends you, cut it off. Those are strong metaphors. He's not thinking literally, although there are people in, in history who took him very literally. Uh, but that's not his point. It's that we must deal harshly with those things that stimulate the thoughts that precipitate the actions, you see? We need to deal with anything that comes into our eyes that causes us to think the wrong kind of thoughts that leads us into actions that are contrary to God's will. The same thing is true of what we touch. So we're to deal harshly with ourselves. Get rid of those things that prompt the thoughts that create the actions and deal harshly with ourselves in that regard. So that means that we need to avoid magazines that stir up the thoughts that prompt the actions or movies that accomplish that same thing, or books, or whatever. 
and be discerning and, and careful in our choices. You see, that's true right across the board. It's not only true of sexual things, it's true of everything else. Uh, I have some friends who have a very difficult time uh, controlling their budget and their spending because of credit cards. Credit cards give you a lot of clout, but they can also get you in a heap of trouble. And uh, what, you, what you can't afford in the middle of the month, you can't afford at the end of the month either, but you think you can. And uh, by some magic, there's going to be enough money at the end of the month to pay off that credit card, so we go deeper and deeper and deeper in debt, and you end up paying 18% interest on this enormous growing balance that you can't handle. And there are a lot of people who are, who, have, who are in big trouble financially for that reason. Well, the answer to it is very simple. Just perform a little radical surgery on your credit card. I had a friend who said he cut his in half and he put half of it in the kitchen waste basket and half of it in the living room basket so there wouldn't be any divine healing. Just <laughs> get rid of the thing, see? Whatever it is, that though the thing in itself may be good. See, I, as I understand right now, uh, the average family watches from four to six hours of television every night. Now, that's an awful lot of television. Kids don't go outside and play. They don't read books. They don't talk as a family. They stay up late at night, and they get up in the morning with granulated eyeballs, and they're irritable, and they can't stand each other. Well, you see, something needs to happen to that television set. I've said before, I'm not against television, but if television dominates us, then we need to chunk the thing out the back window. See, that's, that's what Joseph learned. You, you can't be around. You can't play with fire. And uh, we need to stay out of those circumstances or put away those things that create in us the temptation to sin. Now, there's a further step. Verse 11, one day he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. The uh, New American Standard says he ran out, to the out into the outside. And the Hebrew word that's used for outside is the word for the outskirts. In other words, she grabbed his coat and he just ran right out of his clothes and in his skivvies ran right through the middle of town all the way to the city limits and just kept right on going. That's the kind of radical action that was called for in this case. Now, what we are intended to learn from this is that there is no situation. I don't care how, how tough things are. It's never impossible to escape. There's always a way out. Joseph was in what would appear to be the impossible situation, and yet there was power to get out of it. If he wanted out, that's the key. And though it meant fleeing and at somewhat uh, and, and causing some embarrassment to himself, there was the power there to do it. Paul puts it this way, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond the point of endurance. You see, that's what we don't believe. He will not let you be tempted beyond the point of endurance but will with the temptation make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. 
In Joseph's case, it was to flee literally, to just to pick him up and lay him down right out the front door and clear through town and out the other side of town. With us, it may be to flee mentally, but there's always a way out. God will never put us in situations that are beyond our capacity to endure. If we fall, it's because we choose to. Now, the um, sequel to the story begins with verse 13. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to make sport of me, but as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, This is how your slave... His wife told him, saying, This is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. Egyptian law, at least their laws, statutes at this time, uh, provided a death penalty for adultery. And the fact that he didn't put Joseph to death indicates that he must have suspected there was something wrong with his wife's story. But he did put him out uh, in an outpost prison, Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And in Psalm 105, you have the poetic counterpart of this story, and there we're told that the, the shackles, the manacles on Joseph's arms and feet cut into his flesh. He was there under hard labor. It's a difficult time for this, for this young man. In some outpost uh, prison where he had to work, but while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. See, it didn't matter where Joseph was. He was always the same man. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those who held, all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. So there you have, again, a description of the progressive exaltation of Joseph from uh, bondage in prison to a place of, of authority in that prison. And then chapters 40 and following show how eventually he was delivered from prison and was made vice-regent of Egypt, second only to the Pharaoh. And then in verse 45 of chapter 41, we're told that Pharaoh gave Joseph the name Zaphonath Paneah and gave him a seneth, daughter of Potiphar, priest of On to be his wife. You see, uh, Joseph let God make the choices for him. He waited for God to make the choice because he knew that God's will was best. He didn't short-circuit the process for a cheap thrill, for a few minutes of pleasure. He waited, and, and it was hard while he waited. He, he waited for, for something like 12 to 15 years, difficult times, but he waited. And God gave him a princess. And you see, had he given in to that one moment of, of passion, he would have lost all that. God always gives the best to people that wait for him, people who do it God's way. 
who resist the temptation to, to short-circuit the process and get things their own way in their own time. Joseph could very well have reasoned, my, this is my prime opportunity. If, if I somehow if I establish a relationship with Pot Potiphar's wife, I can use this to further my own political ambitions, and who knows where it could lead. But you see, he, he did it God's way. And in Joseph's case, it led to a number of years of difficult circumstances, hard times. But because he waited, God gave him the best, gave him a princess. Now, you see, these are the things that we learn from Joseph's life that I think fortify us for times of temptation. The first is that we need to establish and maintain a vital ongoing relationship with Jesus Christ through his word. The second is that we, we must maintain the perspective that sin is not ultimately against people because we can excuse our sins by saying, well, it doesn't hurt anybody. We both agree. We're both consenting adults. doesn't matter, but it does because it's a, it's a sin against God. It hurts a father's heart. And furthermore, he's a judge. So we need to maintain that perspective that God sees and knows. And sin ultimately is a violation of his character. And third, we need to be wary of certain circumstances. There are some circumstances we can't handle. And we need to get out of them, no matter how costly that may be. And then finally, there's always a way of escape. Having done everything, we can, as Paul says, stand. There's no situation that's so overwhelming and we can't be victorious. God will make a way of escape. There will be a way out so that we don't have to give in. And then there's also a way back. For many of us, there's a backlog of disobedience in the back of our minds and in our lives that, that's frustrating and makes us feel guilty. But we need to remember that there's a way back. No matter how many times we may have failed, the door is always open. He's a waiting father. He wants us to come back. And when we come back, there is then in that relationship the power to, to go on in unbroken fellowship with him. Let's pray, shall we? Remember, I'm sure, the story of the, the woman caught in adultery whom everyone else around the Lord wanted to condemn, but whom the Lord forgave. And uh, his word was not only one of forgiveness, but also a word of assurance, go and sin no more. There may be in, in your life some uh, long-standing area of sin that God's been putting his finger on, this would be a good time to, to yield that area to him and just tell him that you accept his forgiveness for failure in the past and you want him to, to rule in your life in that area in the future and make for you a way out. Will you do that? Father, we thank you for a word that is always so
pertinent and relevant. Uh, it comes at us right where we are and speaks to the deep needs that we have. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.